So these are the paradoxes. Or even in your example of the opium wars, how understanding that the, the surplus of opium in India, surplus of tea in China, the economic system of capitalism had to do with the origins of the of the war itself. You are right. With tea, of course, for strange reason, I know this. With tea, you know, this wasn't the original India, but this Darjeeling and all those Indian yeah. things, this was strictly British colonial policy. They also reinvented traditions in India. Do you know that I book that I quote in some other of my texts, uh, The Loss of Manu? It's maybe the most horrible ideological book you can imagine, a Hindu book, a classic, describing in detail, and I love it because of its obscenity, all the daily life rituals that you should follow. And it goes in this ridiculous way. How do you fornicate? In what way do you wipe your penis of sperm? And so, But the point is that this is not some old Indian tradition. No. The British, after they colonized fully India in 1830, 40, I don't know when, they were very intelligent. They didn't fall into the trap of Homi Baba, who thought this mimicry. No, no, no. They want. They were authentic racist multiculturalists. They want Indians to be kept in their ancient ideology because they got it that as such. If they are kept in their old ideology, it will be much easier to manipulate them. So they, the British colonizers, rediscovered this tradition. All of a sudden, laws of Manu were reprinted serially. And uh, so, again, another case of how return to original traditions. It's not an anti-colonialist move, but it's mm-hmm. the very move of how colonialism uh, reasserts its uh, domination. Just to skip back for a second, you briefly mentioned Sartre, um, and I was interested to see your reference to him in the book with uh, Liberty and Freedom, but I was wondering how you would understand your concept of freedom in relation to Sartre's existentialist freedom, I guess. Of course, now we can go into this debate, is this only the early Sartre? Mm-hmm, the- right. The later Sartre, which is critique of dialectical reason, more moved towards yes. or towards a social dimension mm-hmm. and so on. But uh, 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 I think that uh, although Sartre has this deep existential sense of the abyss of freedom and so on and so on, that uh, nonetheless. Paradoxically, I would even say that she was not enough of an existentialist, you know. She still has this comfortable vision of 
ego, human being, totally free, self-responsible. He was not attentive enough to the madness of freedom. And second thing, which I developed in the book, to this paradox, wonderfully formulated by another mega name of German idealism for me, Schelling. There are two Schellings. None of them is an idiot. Maybe you know, did you hear about Thomas Schelling? He's a 20th century, some in the mid-century, theorist of theories of rational choice, who was pretty intelligent. He was the key advisor to the American government of how to cope with the threat of nuclear war. And he provided a very good theory of why we should resist this typically American temptation, you know, two cowboys meeting who will blink the first, who will <laughs> draw the gun. He provides a very a beautiful, complex reasoning of how to avoid a catastrophe. And according to some sources, his theories even had a direct influence on Kennedy administration, which was, mm. people tend to forget today, I'm not idealizing Kennedy, don't misunderstand me, but you know that he was under terrible pressure of the militaristic hardliners in his government administration who wanted immediately to bomb, uh, to bomb Cuba and so on, to risk everything, and okay, not that selling, but Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Schelling, the German idealist, who said something wonderful. He said that all truly free decisions are unconscious. You consciously experience them as necessity. And you know, just to, for our viewers, what examples uh, we can give from our today's perspective, but also Schelling mentions them. For example, my eternal example, love. Love is, there is a free thing if it's a choice of love object. By definition, you cannot say, I decide that I will now fall in love. In love, we have the same paradox as the one I mentioned uh, from Kierkegaard. Uh, of course, once you are in love, you can Name the reasons why you fell in love. I like her, sorry, my male chauvinist version. Me, I imagine falling in love with woman. It can be different and so on. Okay, uh, uh, you can say the reasons, but you see these features as reasons only because you are already in love with that person. So, but, uh, so when does love happen? It never happens as a conscious act. It's not, oh, I look around, now I will fall in love. All of a sudden, you discover that you are already in love. And love becomes your fate, necessity, uh, uh, whatever you want. And uh, for Schelling, and up to a point already Kant, before him, these such acts are the only true freedom. They have a wonderful Kant and then Schelling distinction between simple choices, which are simply objective choices. Sorry for the vulgarity, but like, you know, my eternal example, I go, I go to, a, to a drugstore and decide, my God, strawberry cake or chocolate cake. You are free to choose? No. 
But there are more radical choices, choices where you choose yourself. You choose what you are. You choose your character and so on. And these choices are your true freedom. Because uh, uh, these choices that you make, this book or that book, this cake or that cake, these choices can be accounted for in determinist way, yeah, because you were secret. But, but not this more radical choice here. I think you get authentic freedom. Precisely, again, in this circular temporality where you do this for reasons, but you see these reasons only once you already do it, no? This mm -hmm. paradox, again, that that uh, your highest freedom, where you choose yourself, what you are, is experienced as your fate, as necessity. Maybe this dimension is something that is missing in Sartre, in his being and nothing, lettre le neon. Although, I mean, I have, I have uh, otherwise great respect for Sartre, even for some, not all, of his novels and so on, but that's another talk. Mm -hmm. Let's not get lost. Please go on. All right, then. So maybe freedom in the wired brain, then, Slavoj. So how are we to think about radical freedom when brain sciences, et cetera, et cetera, are telling us that we're merely experiencing a kind of user illusion, like, you know, electricity or signals in the brain? Yeah, yeah. So, like, with determinism, predestination, fate, wh where's the subject here? Ah, oh, that's an excellent question. And I try to elaborate it. The first chapter of my book is more abstract, concrete freedom. In the second chapter, I go into this, determinism versus freedom. And, well, this is scientific debate. All I can say is, I think maybe I even quote here to repeat that Sabine Hossenfelder, the well-known German scientist and at the same time popularizer of quantum physics, is that if you adopt a scientific approach in the sense of our natural sciences, then the debate over freedom is over. Of course, there is no freedom. Because, But why? Because we already in advance conceive universe as a deterministic whole, determined by natural laws and so on and so on. Of course, there is no freedom here. Then you have a nice way to say freedom, if I remember it correctly, Daniel Dennett advocates it. And yeah. even some Marxists, like the early Bukharian Lenin fellow. Their idea is this one, that we should simply distinguish levels. We experience as freedom where you have certain tendencies, you critically question them, you do what you decide, you don't feel oppressed. No? That's what we experience as freedom. But the determinist will tell you, okay, I give you that notion of freedom. I'm just saying that this is just your phenomenal, as you said, experience. And that in reality, what you experience as your, as your spontaneous urges and so on is already predetermined. It can be social causes. It can be neuronal forces. Whatever. The way I try to problematize this notion is a little bit more complex 
let me nonetheless try to explain it a little bit more complex philosophically. It's that on the one hand, of course, the moment you have this objective scientific approach, everything is part of reality. You can develop how we humans emerge out of apes, natural, and so on and so on. Here, of course, there is no space for freedom. But on the other hand, what philosophy also emphasizes is, and I'm not talking about this in any specific Heideggerian sense, the hermeneutic approach. It not it clear that to see nature as this uh, complexity, infinite complexity of causes and effects, the, inter, the deterministic interconnection, that uh, you get this result because you already approach nature in this way. That is to say, we never approach nature as tabula rasa. We approach, of course, I'm not saying na uh, natural sciences are just fictions. I'm just saying that already in their approach, they define nature in a certain way. And here it can be wonderfully shown that the crucial event of modernity, you find it in even in theologists like Pascal, is this clear distinction between inner space of imagination and so on, meaning, and external space of mechanical automatic processes. This was not the medieval vision, not even the Renaissance vision. There, mm -hmm. meaning was still something immanent to reality itself. Reality itself gives us signs, meaning, and so on and so on. This is the whole point, for example, of Michel Foucault's history of madness, that before modernity, madness was conceived as something which contains a secret meaning. Either it was devil's intervention or whatever. It was not just a, a, a mechanical, meaningless malfunctioning of your brain, which should be treated as a medical object. So what I'm saying is that uh, here I remain within the horizon of idealism. Yes, natural science, a great thing, but it cannot really fully explain itself. Of course, it pretends that it can. Every good naturalist Evolutionists will tell you that's how we developed out of apes. But still, the circle remains. He or she gets what they put into their objects. They already approached the object in a certain way. So my point is that, uh, and this point I think is confirmed by the paradox that the more we try to understand reality, in an objective way, the way it is independently of us, the more we get totally abstract formulas, which are clearly our intellectual products. What is quantum physics? There even is no longer any reality. It's just abstract mathematical formulas and so on. So uh, what I'm saying is that uh, this poor self-objectivization is not possible. It's always 
yes, I can explain myself in an objective way, but because I chose objective scientific approach as a privileged approach. Second thing, ah, here get thing, things get really interesting. Even in science, behavioral science, cognitivism, and so on, things are not as clear as that. You know that there are some polemics about do sciences really imply full determinism? One way here is, of course, through quantum physics, which poses a limit to determinism. Now, here, it's too primitive to say this means freedom. No, because freedom is not the same as contingency. Freedom is determination. Freedom is, I say so freely. But uh, I think the way we can combine determinism with a minimal marginal freedom is to locate freedom not into this ideal domain, but into a domain of, again, what Freud called death drive, self-destruction, or this logical violence. You do something not to achieve something, but just for the sake of it. This paradox is a kind of disturbance in nature. So I think things, again, are not as clear as it may appear with this determinism. I think it has its limits. Perhaps beyond determinism and the wired brain, you, you've referenced it several times, but the role of the unconscious and freedom. Could you just speak to how those relate with one another? Ah, but here we are also approaching a more uh, contemporary topic. That's my problem with, for example, some. I totally support trans movement in the sense of the rights of the trans people and so on. But for me, uh, you know, where is the limit of trans movement? They, of course, oppose historicism or biological determinism. They claim me being a man or a woman or something else is not directly determined through biology. It is a here problem for me. So their claim is I experience myself as something, and that's my truth. And this truth doesn't have to coincide with my biological determination. And what bothers me, what annoys me is that where does this notion of freedom that is implied here? Uh, that's how I feel. It's not predetermined by anything. That's what I am, blah, blah. You know what's my problem? That precisely trans activists, as well as cognitivists, that's why your question was very good, they both deny or ignore, rather, the Freudian unconscious. The Freudian unconscious is not deterministic. No, Lacan repeats this. Becoming a man or a woman or whatever gay, trans, and so on. It's not a matter of natural biological determinations. It's the result of a tough, traumatic, symbolic process, which precisely is not fully conscious. In between the two, it's the unconscious. Unconscious is this vast domain of traumatic interruptions, and so on, which is, now I will make a center point, which is also at work, I think, 
in becoming what they call normatively heterosexual men and women. With some trans people with whom I debated, they claimed that those of us who identified themselves cisgender simply as what they are biologically, that we are kind of ontologically lazy, if I may put it like this, you know. I'm too lazy to work. No, Freud's point is that even if the sexual identity in which you find yourself is you are a biological man who experiences himself as a man or whatever, this is not a direct linear natural process. So I think in this sense, the unconscious is crucial today. And in this big debate, biological determinism or trans free choice, I am what I feel. Again, both poles exclude the unconscious. So cause and duty are dirty words today for the left. Fidelity to an event, to a cause. So what is an authentic master and why in a book about freedom do you claim we need one? Ah, here, I like this question because many people suspected me when I used this topic in my uh, lectures as being secretly a fascist or whatever, no? Uh, You know, here comes my anti-liberal tendency. If by liberal tendency you mean that we are spontaneously, naturally free, and that master only means oppression. This, it, there is a lesson that I took from Alain Badiou, where he claims that, no, spontaneously, when we are free in our consumerist society, we are most enslaved. If you do what you want, blah, blah, but what you want is not neutral. It's conditioned by social ideology, blah, blah, and so on. You are totally manipulated. So to be free, that's the hypothesis problematic for many people, sorry. To be free, you need a push from outside. And this is the function of a figure like master. Now, let me clarify this. I want here to impose or to introduce a distinction, which seems to me at least obvious, between two types of a master. The, there are many differences between tradition and modern so-called totalitarian master, but the common feature is that they act as if they know better than you what is good for you. That's the core logic of Stalinism. Like uh, the idea being you need an external authority to tell you what you really want. But uh, look at figures like, he's not simply a master, but it's more ambiguous, like psychoanalysts or great emancipatory political leader. Take, for example, sorry for this example, first I think Nelson Mandela had its own limitations, but let's say he was not a bad guy. (laughs) He didn't function as a master in the sense of telling you what is best for you. It was simply, and I know how this term was misused then by Obama, the lesson of an authentic master is, no, you are not just what you are, that limited particular being enslaved to your passions, 
you are able to move beyond yourself, this famous Obama's yes, we can. And mm-hmm. you remember that wonderful, ironic joke when it was discovered how much Obama administration was scanning our documents, following our digital identity, then this yes, we can, I love this leftist version, was changed into yes, we can, you know. (laughs) (laughs) What I wanted to say is that, you know, somebody like Mandela, with all his limitations, again, the effect of ordinary people on of him, what of him on ordinary people was not. Oh my God! Now there is a guy, a new master who is a good one. No, he was simply. The meaning of his figure was: we are not enslaved to apartheid. We can. He was giving us hope, uh, and again, what mattered? What this openness attacks. Somebody has to kick you. Hey, you are not only what you think you are. Now I am returning to my starting point. You are also a little bit mad in the sense of Hegel. And mm-hmm. that madness can be destructive, but it can all also be an origin, a source of your more authentic freedom. The master, in this sense, now, I will say something horrible for my democratic socialist friends. Is I still, or you know who was for me an authentic master? You remember the inauguration of uh, Biden? Mm-hmm. You remember the role there? It's the most beautiful case of Bernie Sanders sitting there alone and so yeah. on. Why did that? image of him become a cult. Not because anybody thought he knows better than everybody. He was elevated into, let's say, a symbol of hope. No, we don't trust this stupid spectacle with that stupid uh, poet lady and so on. It was such kick. Amanda Gorman or who? Yeah, that was a terrible poem. Really bad. That's what you said nicely. My God, it's doesn't anybody dare to say this? It's simply a <laughs> terrible poem. So, <laughs> and what I'm saying is that you see, here is an authentic master. He didn't say anything. He was just okay. He had this effect because we knew who he was. People knew, but nonetheless, he was just sitting there, and the effect was story. The spectacle that we see there is not the truth. There is hope because there is another dimension. Then now I totally, in a legitimate way, uh, now I will conclude with a crazy totalitarian paradox. (laughs) I uh, know that if such a person becomes an actual political leader, no, there is a temptation to become something more than this, like real master in a bad sense. So you know what would have been my ideal state in emancipatory movement, revolution, when social order is disintegrating, you need a master who kicks you, gives you freedom. But then maybe a master should be discreetly, indiscreetly 
I give a good master five to ten years. After that, if he doesn't die, maybe he should be killed. <laughs> I I think that again, talking about temporality, you know, uh, this is this type of temporality where something works at the beginning. If it lasts for too long, it is the old-fashioned master of which you can you should get rid of. But nonetheless, my point here, important one, is why a master because. Without, in this emancipatory sense, a master, somebody who kicks you, hey, you're not like, like that, that is hope, we get experts. Mm. And I'm afraid of experts. I think that the, today we are approaching the reign of experts. And people see more and more that this doesn't function, which is why, in some sense, even Trump is a reaction to this technocratic rule of experts. No, and uh, uh, I'm not just fetishizing masters. I think even if you ask me what to do, I'm not idealizing so-called uh, people's assemblies. But you know that this is maybe the only interesting phenomenon that you find now in France, in England. I was told that there are in some other European countries. It's not traditional parliamentary democracy, but it's that the state, or in a certain domain, a big city, totally by lottery, almost totally, they probably exclude clinical idiots or whatever, they select among those who are maybe more active in politics, the usual number is 300 people, but the crucial things is they are not selected because of their expertise, but by lot. And they give them to debate certain points. Now, here there is still a problem, I know, because in China, you hear all the time this story, we have a more deliberative democracy. But nonetheless, you know, yeah, 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 we deliberate, but who will then make a choice? <laughs> but nonetheless, I think that it worked on a limited scale, but wonderfully in France, I read. Like, there is a new life and you mobilize people. No, it's not pure lot, but people who are already active in social networks, blah, blah, blah. And you bring them together. They are an outside voice. Maybe this is one way to breathe a new air. Another one is the crucial one, where I understand the Chinese. You know, we are now at a point where we need more than ever global long-term planning. Isn't an obvious defect of our democracy that you think how I will survive the next two, maybe four years? But who will make who will make uh, uh, the long-term plans? The in spite of my of all my opposition to it, the Chinese Communist Party has this good point that they don't have to bother with this problem. <laughs> they be re-elected <laughs> in four years. Which yeah. is why their problem is not what will happen next two, four years. Their problem is a long term, usually the number they evoke is 2050. Mm. You know, they are allowed to, to plan it in this way. So I think that to confront since market is not strong enough 
for us to confront all these uh, problems from ecology to uh, control by artificial intelligence, warrant, so on. Isn't it obvious that in some sense, planning, and not local, even global planning, will have to be reinvented, rehabilitated? And the problem is how to do it, not in this totalitarian or uh, expert way. That's the big problem today. Everybody knows planning will have to be rehabilitated. Sorry, can we now slowly, slowly, I'm at the end of my end. Yeah, and I and, don't know uh, how I will impute to you the totalitarian formula. You should know better than me what I really wanted to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And act accordingly, <laughs> you know. You know that there is a Soviet director, total Stalinist, who did the two of the most ridiculous poems, movies elevating Stalin. I forgot his name. Some guy from Georgia, Georgia. Uh, 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 and in one of his movies, Kliatva, which means uh, like uh, 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 that you promise yourself to Stalin and so on, there is a scene at the end when a woman who is the heroine of the movie did something great, an invention, and is at the end of the World War II, received by Stalin, and Stalin kisses her hand. And when there was a premiere, Stalin said, okay, great movie, but I would never and never did kiss, I would never have done this kiss a woman's hand. And you know what this director said to Stalin? He was able to do it because they were drinking bodies and so on. He said, sorry, but Soviet public and we in the movie know better than you, Stalin, what Stalin would have done. <laughs> it's a wonderful obscenity, you know. You should be this guy. No, not Stalin. I was Stalin here, I'm sorry. But you should be the director who knows better than Stalin himself. But listen, do you know anything about it? This really worries me what is happening now in Europe also, but especially in the United States, like this Ron DeSantis populism, which the problem is that it gets most votes precisely from the people who will be most affected by mm. this measure. All mm. that stuff. And then did you notice how Trump is more and more openly speaking the language of uh, civil war, you know? Mm -hmm. He says, if I don't mean elections will not be legitimate, then you know what's the latest Trump's? Point. He says, even if I really don't get the majority, even if really the Democratic candidate gets more voices, we will still not recognize elections because this means that through some magic, Democrats hypnotize people, blah, blah, blah. Mm. And uh, this is a dangerous situation, very dangerous. And the same. We in Europe, we are not yet so far, but uh, I'm really a pessimist to cut a long story short, you know. Thanks, Thanks very much, really. Thank you very much. Yeah. Keep in touch if you want something more or whatsoever at some point, no? Yeah, but we'll now, get you back on the, the Christian atheism book. That would be wonderful, yes, because don't be afraid. I'm not getting this type of, you know, half-softly religious and so on. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> God is evil, and mm-hmm. really to really kill God, get rid of God, it's not enough to say there is no God, blah blah. No, you should deconstruct. Sorry for this stupid term. The notion of God from inside. Yeah, become efficient. Remains efficient in a mystified way. You know, like what I really hate is that position. Of course, there is no God, but. There is. There are so many wonderful insights in Christianity that can live on also in a secular way. That's the Jürgen Habermas solution. Mine is exactly the opposite. <laughs> but, you know. Thank very much. Thank and you very much. We will meet again. <laughs> Thanks very much. How did you? Uh, I know, it. but what interests me is how did you connect with each other. So uh, we started the show, me and my brother and a friend, about four years ago. And Michael started out as a listener of the show. And ah. we met through the show, and then he became a host. Ah, that's so that's what I wanted to show. Yeah. Listen about Toronto, no? Is it true? Because the one thing I like to Toronto, if you flew from the United States to Toronto, if it was a close flight from Chicago, it was still possible to land on that small island in the yeah. middle of the river. And I love this. You could practically, if you had closed their hotel, simply no taxi. You just put your bag or and walk to your hotel. That's no? very nice. Yeah. <laughs> but somebody yeah. told me that is it already closed or it will be closed? Uh no, it's still it's still there. I hope it will survive yeah. because that's yeah, one, one of the things, no. I don't like that Sony building where I had the stupid debate picture. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I was actually there. That that was great. Oh my god! Oh my god! <laughs> but did you notice how then after me for one year or what he was ill? Nothing. Mm, yeah. Know, reinvented himself. Sorry, in a much worse way. Yeah. Mm. Now he's really a. Da- he discovered God. Mm-hmm. When he was with me, he was still ambiguous here. Almost yep. a materialist, quoting Nietzsche and so on. Mm-hmm. Now, somebody draw attention of me to some horrible clip where he reports how he spoke with God or how God really appeared to him, you know. Mm-hmm. It's a tragedy almost. <laughs> Thank you very much. Listen. Thank, Thank you. Much. See you. Bye-bye. See you. Bye-bye. How do I get out of here? Ah, leave me. And so on and so on. 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 Thank you.